Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 354 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be talking about activism through fiction and discussing the new anthology of People's Future of the United States. And I'm joined by four guests. So first up, we've got our producer, John Joseph Adams. He's the editor of Lightspeed and Nightmare Magazines, and the series editor of the Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy. And he also oversees John Joseph Adams' books, an imprint of Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. Together with Victor LaValle, he co-edited A People's Future of the United States. So, John, welcome back. Always good to be here. Then next up, we've got Tobias S. Bakel, making his 10th appearance on the show. He's the author of the Xenowalth series of space adventure novels, the eco-thrillers Arctic Rising and Hurricane Fever, and the Halo novels The Cold Protocol and Envoy. His short story, Blindfold, appears in A People's Future of the United States. So, Toby, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on again. The next up, we've got Sam J. Miller, making his sixth appearance on the show. He's a community organizer in New York City and the author of the novels Blackfish City and The Art of Starving. His short fiction appears in magazines such as Lightspeed, Nightmare, and Strange Horizons. In his short story, It Was Saturday Night, I Guess That Makes It All Right, appears in A People's Future of the United States. So, Sam, welcome to the show. Always a pleasure to be here. And also joining us today is Malka Older. She's the author of the novels Infomocracy, Null States, and State Tectonics. And her short fiction appears in magazines such as Wired, Fireside Fiction, and Tor.com. She also has more than a decade of experience in humanitarian aid and development, and is currently finishing a PhD in the sociology of organizations. Her short story, Chapter 5, Disruption and Continuity Excerpted, appears in A People's Future of the United States. So, Malka, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. Okay, so let's start off with John, and have you just tell us about how this anthology came about. <laughs> well... Uh, if you read the description of the cop, uh, uh, if you read the cover copy of the book, you could probably take a guess. Um, it was largely inspired by uh, the election in 2016 and my extreme freaking out about what might entail as a result of that. Um, you know, I wanted to try to do everything I could to sort of resist. Um, the new administration since every sign uh, Trump had given us while he was running for president had indicated that he would be a tyrant um, and nothing he's done since then has dissuaded me um, or many right thinking people from that notion. Um, so I wanted to do everything I could and the idea of only doing what every other citizen can do didn't seem like enough to me since I work in publishing and because when you work in publishing, you have the power to magnify voices, and I wanted to try to use that power for good, um, because one of the things that the Trump administration has been showing us is that uh, words have a lot of power, and uh, although we all have the ability to use those, use our own words, um, not all of our words get heard equally, and so I wanted to use my position as an editor to try to help magnify the voices of the people that we invited to participate in this anthology um, to sort of shout back at the Trump administration um, and also to try to sort of imagine some new futures that might help us figure out um, how do we get back to normal from here. So how did Victor Laval get involved? Uh, well, I had, uh, pitched it, uh, well, I sent, I had sent the proposal to my agent and actually it was, uh, a much more just sort of straight up resistance oriented anthology. And he had an idea to send it to One World, um, which, uh, focuses on publishing, uh, you know, people of color and other, mar other marginalized voices. And 
So when uh, the acquiring editor there, Victor, uh, Victory Matsui, um, bought the book, uh, they wanted to sort of... Um, they, they, they sort of pushed me in the direction that the book ended up in with the sort of, uh, more, uh, more sort of positive, uh, a mix of more positive features in the mix. Um, and, and Victory suggested the title, uh, People's Future of the United States, which was perfect. Um, and, uh, because of One World's mission of, uh, you know, uh, publishing, uh, underrepresented creators and all that, um, that they, they wanted me to partner with a, with another, uh, you know, with another editor, uh, to, you know, so I would just be co-editing the book. And so, um, once, uh, once we decided that that was the right thing to do, uh, uh, Victor Laval was right on the top of my list. And, um, so, uh, we reached out to him and asked him if he wanted to do it. And he did, uh, and he already, um, you know, works with, uh, Chris Jackson who runs one world. And, um, so it was like a natural fit. And so unpack that a little bit. You said that some of the stories are more positive and others are more dystopian or. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, like, for instance, Shonda McGuire's story in the book is, uh, it, it starts off with a sort of a dystopian uh, concept, but then uh, by the end of it, it's like it all gets, uh, uh, it all ends, like, very happily. And I mean, it's one of the more rarer examples in the book where things turn out well. Uh, but, uh, yeah, my, from, from the initial concept, uh, I thought it was going to be much darker than the book would be. But then um, by the time we uh, sent out our, you know, invitation to the authors... Uh, we made it clear that we were interested in, in getting both sorts of uh, points of view and how the book ended up. Uh, we weren't sure if it was going to be sort of more half and half or, or sort of 75, 25 in terms of like dystopian versus positive. And uh, so I think it ended up with a nice mix. And if, uh, if we had gone, if we hadn't done it in that way, I feel like the book may have been just like too brutal to read because it would have just been this unending, um, sort of barrage of despair since 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 the since the stories are tackling this immediate like you know present uh these present day issues as opposed to imagining some future dystopia that seems pretty far afield from what we're dealing with in the present time um so having that mixture of uh of sort of some more more positive visions i think uh helped helped balance the book and and resulted in uh you know just a better product overall Right now, so many of the authors in this book are, are very familiar to me, and then there are a number who are not. Would it be safe for me to assume that the ones who are not are people that Victor kind of um, brought into the project? Uh, I mean, not necessarily. Uh, some of the uh, so Liz Huerta is actually one where um, she was not familiar to me either, uh, to me or Victor, <laughs> and uh, it just so happened that uh, her agent had reached out to me around the time we were putting the book together, and he was submitting uh, a story. F- from her, um, to light speed. Uh, but then and it's like, I read it. It's like, Oh, uh, Hey Victor, take a look at this. This is like perfect for the anthology. Right. And, uh, and so he agreed. And, and so we took it for the anthology. Um, so that was one case, but, um, in some of the other cases, um, let's see, I think, um, so there was one author. So Kai Cheng Tom, um, is somebody that victory at one world suggested, um, and then otherwise, I think we just were sort of brainstorming about different, uh, folks, um, and cause we wanted to get some sort of people from the literary side of things as well. And so like Leslie Nika Arima is one of those, uh, folks. And, and I mean, I was familiar with her from having read, um, you know, read wildly, widely for best American science fiction and fantasy. Uh, she had a story in the New Yorker, um, a couple of years ago that I thought was really good. That was, uh, fantastical, um, and like Omar al Akkad, he wrote, uh, um, you know, he wrote a, a dystopian novel uh, in recent years that I was aware of already. And so that's why he came to my attention for this. 
Um, and, you know, Gabby Rivera, uh, you know, she, uh, uh, you know, she's, she's written some, uh, comics and, uh, and she has a novel and, um, you know, anyway, yeah, she, she's like less, she was sort of less familiar to maybe, uh, people who read like Lightspeed or whatever, but, uh, she was, you know, she'd been on my radar. Um, but I just hadn't ever worked with her before. Yeah. Well, so let's talk about some of the authors that are joining us on our episode today. Mm -hmm. So other than just the fact that they're awesome, <laughs> was there any specific reason, um, in their bios or bibliographies or anything that you wanted to get Toby and Malka and Sam into this book? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, you know, with Sam being, um, you know, sort of a, uh, community activist and, and, and all, uh, or is, I don't know, is that the right, is that the community right organizer, right? Com yeah, with, with Sam being a community I organizer, I, I figured, uh, uh, that background certainly suggested that he might be interested in this topic, uh, but then also having just read a number of his stories, I, I thought he would be. Um, uh, 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 sort of similarly with Malka, like, you know, um, just being familiar with her work, uh, with Informocracy and such, it seemed like, again, this is, uh, this was likely a topic that she would be, uh, um, uh, you know, amenable to tackling. Um, and then Toby, yeah, you know, kind of, kind of same deal. It's like, you know, a lot of his stories, uh, sort of revolve around different kinds of, uh, issues that, uh, might be, uh, relevant to the, to the theme of the anthology and, um, I, uh, I suspected that he would be able to bring a nice, um, sort of, uh, technologically oriented, uh, uh, view to the, to the theme in question. Um, whereas, like, some of the other authors are more like, oh, well, I was thinking of them as sort of more a social science fiction sort of context, bringing that to it. Um, whereas Toby, I thought, like, oh, well, I mean, he had, he would have some of that, but then also he'd bring some tech into it. And so I thought that would be a good fit. Well, yeah, Sam, do you want to pick up on that? I mean, do you want to, is there anything else to say about why you're a good fit for this sort of an anthology? Uh, I mean, I think I talk a lot of shit on Twitter. Um, <laughs> that might have made me an appealing prospect or somebody that the editors might have thought, oh, yeah, this person is super angry. Um, not that there isn't, not there's any shortage of that. Um, but yeah, I do think that as a community organizer for many years and, and someone who, uh, you know, I try really hard to incorporate a lot of, uh, activism into my fiction f for want of a better way to put it and, and, and trying to think about and unpack, uh, a lot of the issues of oppression that, that stress me out in the world. So, um, you know, I think that, that, that certainly from my end made me excited about the, the, um, request for, for submissions. Um, I also feel like I got, several <laughs> requests for submissions mm -hmm. to anthologies that were about like, Oh my God, it's the apocalypse. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, response to Trump anthologies. And this was the one that I mean, this one was super exciting and I knew this one was going to be amazing. So did you, you were only able to accept one of those invites or? Yes. Yes. I, I, uh, I'm sure the other ones came out amazing, but my capacity was limited and, uh, between, already having great experiences working with John and being a big fan of Victor's, I knew this was the right call. Uh -huh. Well, say a little bit more, Sam, about you said that you, that activism is very sort of intentional in your fiction. Could you talk about sort of, do you see um, that having an impact on people who read your fiction? I would like to think so. Um, but you know, I, it, this this is always a challenge in terms of thinking about how to be an activist and a fiction writer, sometimes in the same sentence, um, because 
for me personally, as an artist, I'm not trying to convince anyone. It would be great if I could convince people. But, you know, one of the things I, I, I learned in community organizing is um, you can convince people uh, who are opposed to what you're saying. Um, but that's a lot of work and really difficult. And for me, what's more valuable, both as an organizer and as a writer, is giving um, hope and inspiration and excitement to the people who agree with me. Because I feel like there's a lot of people who um, they're they're with us, they're on the right side of things, but they feel helpless or disconnected or they don't know their own power or they don't know what they can do in, in, in by working in community with other people. Um, and being able to show people that, I think, is the thing that um, – when I'm successful, if I'm successful as a writer or as an activist, it's, it's in those, it's in that space of, of, of not trying to convince my enemies, but, to um, you know, hug my friends. So, so in terms, terms of your enemies, do you, um, when, when they come after you, I guess, probably on, on social media, if you're that involved, do you, do, do you just not engage with them or do you like, how do you react to negative, um, responses to your politics, to your activism? I mean, I've, I, yeah, I, I have a pretty solid disengagement rule. Sometimes if the person is particularly, uh, dumb or, uh, you know, uh, dialoguing in particularly bad faith, I'll, uh, risk, uh, a, a clapback. But usually I don't want to give that any energy just in terms of my own internal, like, oh my God, this is stressing me out so much and I don't want to, like, continue the conversation. Um, so, so my style is, is much less, you know, uh, uh, about, about getting in, getting in fights digitally anyway. I can, I can scream on a sidewalk, uh, <laughs> at a protest with, with the best of them. Mm. Well, so how about Malka? Do you see yourself as, uh, you know, doing activism through your fiction? Um, I think talking shit on Twitter should probably be on all of our resumes <laughs> at this point. Um, so I, I do think that, um, you know, I, I was definitely trying to make, some points, uh, both with my novels and with some of the short fiction that I've written. Um, and I, I try to make points not so much about the specific, like, racehorse style of politics, not about in the moment, but about really, um, thinking about how we process our politics, how we process our information, and, you know, it's sort of taking a, a bigger view of systemically what can we do better and what is it important that we think about and what do we need to really improve and you know where do we have to have more voices um so yeah absolutely i mean could you articulate if, if there was a, a takeaway that you wanted people to come away from your novels with the the trilogy uh in terms of how we deal with surveillance or you know is, is there some like takeaway that you could give us yeah, absolutely. Although I would say that the takeaway from my novels is less about the surveillance part and more about the control of information. And I mean, it's pretty much right there in the title of the first book. Whoever controls the information rules, basically. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a lesson that we've had to learn again and again. Um, and that, you know, as the way we, we use information shifts, it, it changes and we keep needing to catch up. But that was one of the things that really attracted me to this, um, this anthology specifically because I read the Howard Zinn, um, a people's history of the United States, probably in high school. I want to say, I'm sure it was given to me by someone outside of high school. <laughs> I'm, I'm quite <laughs> Not sure. Not by one that. of your teachers. No, no. Um, and, and what that book is really about is the fact that, that what we're taught in school is not, uh, the whole story 
sometimes it's it's a really small slice of the story or even totally incorrect story. But definitely it's not the whole story. And and that book really demonstrates in the way that it goes through different perspectives how much of a difference that makes in our understanding of what's going on and, and in our decisions about today. And so to take that and flip it into the future for me was really exciting because I think, you know, just as much as we need to hear those um, those hidden stories in the past and we need to hear the other perspectives from the past, we also really need to have to hear what what different people think about the future, uh, both positive and negative. And we need to hear um, the 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 sorts the ideas about the future that are getting hidden, that are getting drowned out, that are not getting published, and and make sure that those are accessible because those stories about the future are are part of the scaffolding that we use to build it. So Sam, I heard you say that that Howard Zinn book made a big impression on you. Yes, yes, I, I'm a I'm a big fan of that book, um, and and yeah, the whole the whole idea of decentering how we how we imagine history and and realizing that like the Columbus's crew um, uh, and the folks who got exterminated by the conquistadors are you know significantly more interesting and more important uh, to understanding the story than Columbus himself. Mm. Um, so how about Toby? So actually, Toby, you were on a panel with us uh, when I interviewed Margaret Atwood. This was back in 2013, and we did a panel on politics and science fiction with Paolo Bacigalupi. Mm-hmm. And so if people are curious about some of these, some of your, you know, interest in politics and activism and stuff, they can go listen to that. But I was just curious, since um, since that conversation in 2013, uh, have there been any developments in your political outlook or the way that you write about politics or anything like that? Uh, no, I mean, what's interesting is in 2013, everyone kind of felt that I was being a little bit worked up and now it seems like a great deal of the rest of the world has sort of caught up. Um, in 2013, I was, uh, feeling like, you know, something had landed on me when I entered this genre. Um, and that a lot of people felt that we were fixing it and moving forward and, and that it was time for me to sort of stop being worried about it, the things I was worried about. And, you know, even I, to a certain extent was a little bit more relaxed, uh, than, than I was in 2016 once, uh, things kind of lurched, um, in a completely different sort of direction. So that, uh, that all sounds very vague and nonspecific, but I'm just sort of trying to like put my finger on the pulse of, of what I would say in terms of difference. I'm a little bit more, I, I would say I was probably a little bit more radicalized and upset about what happened, but also there was just this sort of interesting facet where you were like, people suddenly realized that like that alt-right violence and racism is out there. You know, as someone who puts diverse characters in my books and is diverse himself, um, that background noise has always been a part of my career that I've had to deal with. And it felt like, you know, with the Obama election, a lot of sort of uh, people who had been listening to me before that kind of tuned out and they felt that it wasn't something that they had to worry about. And now we're seeing that, you know, in the background, these forces have grown and, and linked up and gotten in way stronger than even I imagined. And so that's just sort of stuff that, uh, you know, now is, you know, continuing to freak me out, but it's always been freaking me out a little, you know, to some extent or another. It's just how much the dial got turned. 
if that makes any sense. (laughs) Have have you found that that's been affecting your writing or the kinds of stories that you've been telling since 2016? Since 2016, I've written way more short stories uh, and been a lot more interested in processing some of the stuff in a more overt way. I think, um, I think, uh, Nora K. Jemison was just saying on Twitter the other day that, you know, in science fiction, we have this venerable tradition of using metaphor to dig at some of the problems like, you know, race and power and structure and history. And that it's been a mistake because in the past we would always use the metaphor, assuming that many of our fellow readers and fans of the genre were following along, getting the metaphor. And it turns out that they weren't. In other words, like you needed to be way more in your face to say, this is what I'm trying to say, because they were looking at the metaphor of an alien that is powerless and out of the, on the fringes of society and uh, that society was being racist towards or things like that. And then when they were done with that story, they'd say that poor alien and they'd never make the implicit connection. And she was kind of pointing out in Twitter that uh, one of the reasons she uh, feels that we need to step things up and become a little bit more overt is because, uh, you know, it's kind of like going back and seeing on the Internet a bunch of people getting upset that Star Trek has a, you know, black main character and that it's talking about things that seem vaguely communist. And it's like that's it, it's been talking about the abolition of money and it has always been a sort of semi-social justice, you know, uh, show since the very beginning. But obviously a lot of people watched it and never made the connection because they were like, well, it's, it's using metaphor. And so when, you know, Star Trek did something a little bit more overt or did some different changes for a new show, they kind of freak out because then they're faced with this new thing and they think it's new, but it never was. And so this overtness has kind of crept into my work in which I've become a little bit more, not even so much on the nose, but just a little bit more like, I'm not, I'm not going to use a metaphor. I'm actually going to talk about the thing. And I think that's been kind of a a small uh, change and shift in, in my work. Well, this is something I've been thinking about a lot because people often say that one of the big advantages of science fiction is that you can um, sort of get past people's defenses. Because if you start talking, if you write a story about Democrats and Republicans, then instantly everyone knows what side they're on. Whereas if you write a story about, you know, some alien planet or something, people might um, not have their defenses raised uh, immediately in the same way. Um, But then there's this point you're making that maybe you're just being too subtle or, you know, like people's, <laughs> people's defenses aren't being raised, but then they're not getting the point. Mm. Yeah. I don't, yeah. I, I, you know, I'd be interested to see what everyone else uh, has to say, but um, I'm not saying that I'm tossing out the idea of doing metaphor because I just, uh, I have a, another story out that's about aliens that are tourists that land on earth. And it obviously the alien tourists are stand-ins for real life tourists. And I, you know, and, and, and it deals with some of my feelings about the tourist industrial complex uh, slash, you know, TM, Tobias Buckel. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, obviously I'm playing with metaphor there and, and I'm completely okay with it. And I'm hoping people will catch that it's a metaphor. And, and you know, it seems a little on the nose to me, but I couldn't, you know, I didn't, I, I still wanted to make it kind of science fiction. So, I mean, I'm, I'm everything's still in the toolbox, but I think there's some uh, more overt tools that I'm, I'm leaning towards now because I'm also trying to process some stuff as well. Well, right. I mean, so John, was this a concern for you, being that this anthology is so overt about its political outlook, that you're only preaching to the choir? Or like Sam was saying, do you, is what you care about right now um, sort of strengthening and heartening 
um, you know, people that you that are already on the same side. Right. I mean, I'm definitely happy to to strengthen and hearten, uh, you know, those on, those of us on the same side. But yeah, I mean, I was definitely concerned about that, um, that that uh, the people that really need to read this book will never pick it up. Um, you know, I kind of was joking that uh, we could we could reissue the book but don't change any of the contents just put like a a a flat red cover on it with white text and just call it how to make america great again (laughs) um and then just like like and maybe change the cover copy i guess and and just make it all be true what's in the book but then just not as specific and like uh to trick the people who actually need to read the book to pick it up uh although i don't i don't think i could stomach it honestly to (laughs) have a book that looked like that um but uh but yeah you know i mean that's the thing. It's like, uh, you know, I've been saying about this book, like, I don't expect it to change the world, but maybe it'll change a mind. Um, but even that, I, it's like, it kind of feels like we're so partisan right now. It kind of feels like even hoping for that is too much. Like, because it is going to be essentially preaching to the choir, it feels like. Um, although I would like to hope that there's enough uh, sort of variety uh, in the book of uh, about the sorts of uh, issues that um, the different stories um, tackle, that maybe somebody will have a progressive view in one area, but then maybe is not as progressive in some other area, and maybe uh, because they read this anthology cover to cover, uh, you know, maybe they'll come around on one of their other areas where they, and then, you know, maybe one of the stories will make them realize, oh, yeah, actually, I've been an ass about this particular thing, my, you know, for much of my life or whatever, and, and start thinking about it in a different way. And that's kind of what you hope about, that's, that's kind of what you hope, um, you know, fiction can do in general is, is make, teach people how to empathize with each other, uh, with, with people who are different than them. And, uh, so, you know, I'd like to, I'd like to think that maybe, uh, something like that uh, could happen with a book like this, but um, I am pretty pessimistic about it. Well, what you were just saying, John, makes me think of Victor's introduction where he talks about how, you know, he had this sort of difficult relationship with his father and how he wishes that a book like this is something he could have come across when he was a teenager. Mm-hmm. I know, did you ever talk to him about that or did you, do you know anything more? Is there anything more to say about that than what's in the that intro there? Uh, I, I don't think so. I mean, I don't know. I, I, yeah, Victor and I didn't discuss it much beyond what he says in his intro. But, um, but like, I mean, just thinking about like the people that I know, you know, who are sort of on on the other side of things, I find it really hard to imagine that um, uh, that any of them could pick it up. Um, although, yeah, like you say, I mean, maybe maybe if maybe if you can maybe if it's around when those when those people were young. So like maybe like, for instance, his uh, Victor's brother, which he alludes to in, in the introduction, like if his brother could have uh, uh, found that book when he was young, like maybe that could have um, saved him from going down the path that he went down. Um, but yeah, maybe, maybe it's, uh, maybe we have to think about it more like for the future of, uh, you know, the future of the United States, as it were, you know, the, the actual, uh, people, um, who are not yet, uh, sort of already set in their ways, like, uh, many of us are. Well, it seems like a lot of the strength of a book like this is that I think a lot of the persuasive power comes not from the more overt messaging that might be in the stories, but just sort of the, the general background stuff where, Mm -hmm. you know, if climate change is just, is not, it's, it's not, you're not beaten over the head with it, but it's just sort of a, an incidental background detail mm-hmm. in lots of stories that you read. I think it just sort of, you know, seeps into people and they internalize, yo, know, yeah, this is, this is the future, you know? And mm-hmm. I think with all the, the sort of diversity that's in this book is sort of the same way is that just, you know, uh, exposure to, to all these different kinds of characters and their thought processes and things, um, has an effect on people, even if that's not the overt message of the, of the piece. 
Well, right. so I, I want to jump in though, and also just say that like the idea that you can't you can't advocate put advocacy in and put uh, these things into into entertainment is like this uniquely middle class American idea that I find kind of distressing because where I grew up in the Caribbean, um, politics and art were often incredibly intertwined because politics is life and life is art and art is life. So you listen to like, say some Bob Marley, right? And Redemption Song is clearly uh, coming from a distinct perspective. You know, even though you hear it all over the top 40, people often don't stop to listen to the lyrics of, goodness, half of the roots rock reggae that I grew up listening to when I was a kid. And certainly Calypso and uh, Soka, which I grew up listening to, had always always devastating political commentary embedded in quite a bit of it. Um, and people from all sides listened to it and reacted to it and uh, created art back and forth um, on these positions. And the idea that like creating something that has some sort of neutrality is like this inherently bizarre 1950s black and white uh, news broadcaster position that is sort of, I think, not something that uh, is it reflects reality in any way or the way in which human beings exist. Well, let's, so let's get Malka back in here. So Malka, do you have a, a point of view on, on this sort of, you catch more flies with honey than <laughs> vinegar kind of versus what Toby's saying? Well, I, you know, I, I do agree that there's, you know, we can't, we can't make neutral art. We can't really make neutral anything. Um, and, and, you know, I do think that this, this idea that we can have, that there's some arbiter that says this is neutral, this is fair, this is um, objectively correct is for most things uh, really, really problematic. Um, and I, I also think that, you know, while the book was pretty clear about who it was targeting and, and um, that there's a huge chunk of people who just will not touch it, I also think that there's there's a substantial middle ground of people who are you know, like, like Sam says, who maybe need to be rallied up a little bit, who need a little bit of hope, um, who need maybe different ways of, of thinking about things. Um, and I think, you know, one of the strengths of an anthology is that you have a lot of different authors. Each of them has their own fan base. I think probably most, if not all of the authors in their book, the fan bases are very aware of our politics already. <laughs> so the fan base is likely to be on that side. But, you know, nonetheless, you, you're going to have people who are coming for, for the work with this specifically, usually I, I kind of uh, agree with you, David, in terms of, of having things in the background as subtle details, but I went a different way actually with the story in this anthology, I think largely because the title just, just kind of grabbed me with that, with that Howard Zinn flashback. Um, and I was really just trying to think about what activism could look like in the future and how it would change, um, and how community could change as the virtual world matures more. And I, I really had to push myself to come up with ideas. And I hope that they, you know, if not as a kind of how-to, because it's not so much the specific ideas, but it's it's giving people the sense that there, there are new ways of organizing and new ways of belonging and new ways of including and new ways of uh, governing that are kind of just right over the horizon continuously. You know, we're, we're continuing to, to get... Um, to find new ways of doing things and to develop new ways of doing things. And so, you know, I hope it gives people that, that sense and that, that hope and also a little bit of that drive of, you know, we can go out there and create something. 
Well, right. So let's dive into the story a little bit. So it's called Chapter 5, Disruption and Continuity Excerpted, which is a somewhat unusual title. Do you want to <laughs> unpack that for us a little bit? Yeah. Uh, I mean, again, it really comes from the Howard's Inn, um, which I read a long time ago, as I mentioned, and I've probably read pieces of it on and off since then. Um, but I was I was really thinking about the way his chapters work in that they look at a, a kind of chunk of time in the history of, of the United States. And for each of those times, they, they, they look, he looks, um, at a chunk of history of the U.S., but he looks at it through, you know, he starts by looking at the different groups that are often ignored by the histories we have. And he tends to pick out also individuals to really make it more of a story and make it more relatable. So I was thinking about how to do that, um, but into the future. Well, right. So the so in the story, you have this thing. There's this concept called Knox, non-contiguous activist collectives. Is that something you <laughs> dreamed up or is that a real uh, thing? I dreamed it up, but maybe it'll be a real thing someday. <laughs> well, so so uh, uh, explain that. What is a knock? So, you know, one of the, the, the powers that virtual life gives us is to have communities that are less and less bounded by geography and less and less bounded by having the the resources and the proximity to meet in person. So, I mean, in a way, knocks totally exist already. They just aren't called that and aren't being used in exactly this way. But, you know, I am on slacks with lots of people that I have never met in real life, and we have a community. Um, and on Twitter, you know, there are people that I know that I feel like we have a community with, but I've never met them, and they're pretty far away. And you know, who knows if we will meet in person, but we are able to organize and we are able to discuss and uh, think of things and and make things happen that way. But so the idea, I think, right, is that rather the, in the future, rather than thinking of yourself as a citizen of the United States or whatever, you would think of yourself as a citizen of, citizen of some online community. And that's really your central identity, both um, sort of personally and legally. Well, I think without deciding whether it's the primary identity, it's offering it as an alternative alternative identity and really thinking that we can move beyond this national identity, which is a very recent thing, actually, um, and something that has taken on this really disproportionate importance and an importance that, you know, it, national identity, when you try to drill down as to what it actually means, it's quite hard to find a real identity under that, you know, is it just based on where you were born? Is it just based on your, in quotes, creed? Is it, you know, is it based on your agreeing to a certain set of laws? Is it based on your having the wherewithal to immigrate legally? Um, so the idea that, you know, we have these communities that are formed by laws and these sort of very arbitrary laws um, and that that somehow matters in terms of what the people within them are like is, you know, it's an interesting one. But I think we can we can do better. Mm -hmm. How about you use the term costopia, where you, you say <laughs> members conduct themselves as if they belong to the government they want to have? Um, yeah. So I this was uh, imagining again, I was I was really pushing myself to think about, you know, what what can we do in this future um, that would be a kind of activism? It would be uh, new, but also following in existing traditions of both activism and, and other things that we see, you know, other subcultures that we see happening in the world. Um, 
And so this, this is the idea of sort of cosplaying the government that you want. If we, you know, if we all could act (laughs) like we lived in the world that we want to live in, we'd be there. And so Mm -hmm. to do that little by little with these communities that are not necessarily, um, geographically located, but that are communities that can discuss with each other, that can interact with each other, that can decide on the ways people should act and what the punishments might be for someone breaking those rules, um, what the regulations might be for someone acting in an ethical way. I mean, this is, this is, you know, thousands of years of government tradition and, and religious tradition in some cases, but adapted for the world that we live in now. I mean, Sam, I heard you there saying you love that. Do you want to, what is it about that idea that kind of um, strikes you? You know, the idea that we would live under the government we want to live under or the rules that we want to follow. I mean, in some cases, that's, that, that is, of course, is how we all try to conduct ourselves. But, you know, there's this, um, fundamental uh, respect for other people's mode of self-governance that is sometimes lacking when when people try to tell each other how to live um, or when, you know, um, somebody's idea of government is is hostile to the existence of, of people who are different from them. So, uh, yeah, imagining what the, the very sort of special kind of utopia that would be uh, that 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 would create is really awesome. Can, can I make a book recommendation? Yeah. Um, Carl Schrader's Lady of Mazes uh, posits the idea of manifolds, which is um, each each manifold being a, a culture and governance system that uh, shares that those same manif- those same manifestations, but they all live geographically contiguously uh, within each other. So you're the people you vote for, the government you have, and the decisions you make about how to use technology and everything like that. Um, is a manifold, and uh, they all kind of sit on top of each other using uh, artificial intelligences to edit out the other people who are not part of your manifold. Oh, that's awesome. I like Carl's work. I haven't read that one. And and just to, to be very clear about what I was saying, you know, in the, in the story, this is definitely a, a type of resistance. You know, this is an act of um, people who are, who are to some extent disempowered. And it is, you know, as, as Sam points out, it's, it's, kind of a risky act or an act that only can change a limited amount of reality because mm. as long as you are under the laws of a, a di- different nation, you know, you're still going to, you can still come into conflict with those and will still probably um, face real consequences of that. But it is, it is this idea of a type of resistance that can be performed in an active and visible way. And also in a way that allows people to, to, to sort of perform their own ethos, their own ethical ideas of living. Well, speaking of changing the laws of reality, that makes me think of the story. It was Saturday night. I guess that makes it all right by Sam J. Miller. Uh, Sam, you want to tell us about that story? Yeah. Um, you know, sex and prince, my, my two, my two big obsessions. Um, and so, you know, as I was thinking about this, one of the things that happened after the election results in 2016 was, of course, I had the moment of like, real horror of like, oh shit, I knew we were bad. I just didn't, I was hoping we weren't this bad. Um, Justina Ireland at the event talking about this book in Philadelphia said it's like finding out your kindergarten teacher was a, a crackhead. Huh. Um, so yeah, it's like after that initial trauma, uh, I thought about it and I was really, you know, reflecting 
uh, like Toby said, like, oh no, like this is not new. Like we knew this already. Like this is something we've, we've been thinking about and, and fighting against and complaining about. And, you know, I had, I had written a couple years before a sort of like Handmaid's Tale fanfic story that was published in, um, Apex that was sort of about a future where, among other things, uh, women women musicians are banned like there's no there's no songs by women artists that are played on the radio um as part of like a sort of overall patriarchal uh right-wing reactionary shift um so i sort of wanted to think about another story in that same universe um and imagining how overzealous a uh a right-wing uh, fundamentalist American government would get and all the different artists who would be banned for different reasons and um, thinking about how I find Prince what, what what excites me so much about the 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 music of Prince is that it's so it's so sexy but it's also so revolutionary and it's so unsettling and it's so beautiful um, and how sexy scary beauty is is something that tyranny would always be un unsure about and so would probably want to ban it um and so imagining a, a future where you know just as sex for queer people has always been a dangerous and um uh important act of resistance um that that in the that in a reactionary fundamentalist future slash present um that would become even more so and and but but it would also give us sort of help us find the the power to to change the world Right. I mean, there's a line in the story about this epiphany that was percolating about the place of sex in a broader strategy of political resistance. Is there any more to say about that? Oh, there's so much more to say. When is that <laughs> podcast going to happen? No, I mean, I think that the the, the short version is that I, I think that for me, in terms of coming to coming of age as a gay man and thinking about queer identity um, and thinking about great queer art, like the work of James Baldwin or the work of John Janay um, or Keith Haring. Um, you know, there's this sort of uh, it's, it's impossible to understand gay identity without gay sex and without the ways in which uh, this, the sort of very special and, and singular ways queer folks have sex um, and the different, the different morality of it and, and the ways in which that, you know, things like clubs um, have been sites not only of like sexual and, and erotic resistance, but also political resistance. And it's, you know, the, the sort of like, uh, easy example of that is that the Stonewall uprising happened in a really, you know, a really kind of like grimy mafia operated, um, queer club at a time when you could get arrested for dancing with someone of the same sex in New York City. Uh, and when the cops showed up for the routine raids, which they did periodically, um, so as to, um, you know, keep the clubs in line, but also to like, you know, periodically um, punish a mafioso that they opposed. Um, and it was really common practice at that time to run the names of people who had been arrested for, quote, vice. So all the people who would get arrested when a club would get raided, uh, their names would be published in the paper the next day, which often en ended in, you know, people's lives being ruined. Um, so, you know, you can, you can sort of see how that would be the kind of site for resistance of one day the cops would show up and try to arrest everybody and people would have a problem with that, um, and, and fight back. I'm not exactly sure what my question is here, but it occurs to me that in the story, the character is having sex in secret or, or trying to, do you see that as an act of political resistance or does it need to be like Prince singing about sex where people are aware of it to be, to have that political dimension to it um if i'm understanding your question correctly i think that um you know 
it's easy to think of, and I think many people do think of sex as um, something that is secret and circumscribed, and it's this thing you do um, in the you know the privacy of your own bedroom or wherever, um, and it isn't for anybody to talk about or know about. Um, in many cases, it can it's like a, it's a form of escapism, especially for queer people who many times are living um, in one of many closets, right? Whether they're completely out or they're partially out or they're out in some aspects of their life. Um, but they, you know, you know, sex has always been something that happened at rest stops and public bathrooms and malls and abandoned buildings and piers. Um, and that, and that those sites, uh, where queer folks would gather, um, for illegal or dangerous, uh, or secret sex were, would also be potentially grounds for, um, you know, coming together and community and, and, and building and, and power and resistance the same way a song like a Prince song, um, can give you just a jolt of something that can make you feel like you can change the world. Um, and that when you're dancing on a crowded dance floor to Prince, you, you know, for a fact that you could do anything. Right. That's interesting. So, it, cause even if you're having sex in secret, the people that you're having sex with know about it. And so you are forming kind of an underground community that way. Yeah, which can either be one of shame and fear and like, okay, that was great, never going to talk to you again, um, or one of like love and building and, and, and community. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get, uh, let's get Toby in here and so you can talk about your story, The Blindfolds. Um, yeah. Did you want, you want to just talk about what the initial inspiration for the story was? It was, uh, an article about a study done finding out that the length of, of a jail sentence is, impacted by when the judges last had lunch. And that was something that really stuck with me um, on top of all of the usual kind of abuses of, of power that are inherent in the judicial system. And, you know, so we know that um, there are different lengths of sentences given based on the color of your skin, but for some reason that was just an added, uh, you know, like straw of, of, of just, I don't know. It just, my mind seized on it and couldn't let go of it. Um, so, uh, the other thing was just trying to grapple with a sort of techno utopian solution to the idea of like the fact that a jury of one's peers kind of falls apart uh, in the, in the face of a, you know, a society that's struggling with racism, right? If you're a black kid who has been pulled in front of a jury of, mostly white folk, uh, for something horrible, uh, the system, the system doesn't necessarily work. And as I was just playing around with those ideas, you know, I came up with uh, a lot of times we, we tend to put band-aids on, on problems. And so my band-aid, you know, the, the techno solution, um, in a near future would be for someone to then suggest, you know, using augmented reality to erase race. You know, there's so many white people who always say like, I don't see race. Um, and so the idea is that, you know, in the future, the judicial system uses this sort of technology to sort of try to level the playing field. And one of those sort of like, you know, it's a sort of fix you could see people getting together to try to do. And then I wanted to show why that would still be problematic and just explore. It's just a, a riff on exploring some of these things, uh, a way to kind of try and process them in, uh, through through this story. Right. Well, um, let me just explain for our listeners. So the the jurors are wearing sort of VR headsets. Yeah. So and so that's so then it's it's sort of superimposing a randomly selected race over the defendant, so they don't know what race the defendant is. Yeah. Thank you for that. Um, 
it, sometimes writers are the worst at explaining their own <laughs> stories. If I could have sense, if I could have summarized it in a sentence like that, Dave, I wouldn't have had to write the story. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so so then say why you think that that would not be a good solution or adequate solution. It's not an adequate solution because it's a band-aid on you know a society that's still problematically broken. You know, so people will will try to get around it somehow, and it doesn't fix the core problem, which is the society's issues with race, right? It, it's sort of a, it's, it's a fix, but it doesn't fix the core fix. You know, it's sort of like stitching someone up, but there's still a bullet inside, you know, you've stopped the bleeding, congratulations, but you know, there's, there's still something horribly wrong going on. So I got to highlight the problem by talking about the fix that was, you know, that you could do with technology. And so, you know, and, and then I explained in the story that there are other biases that are still going to be in there. So like, how far does this go? Right. You know, people are, people are doing studies that show that like, Hey, you know, there's bias of race, there's bias of when the judges last had lunch. So like, where do we end up? Do we end up with, you know, a judge that has an IV, you know, in them so that they have like continuously modulated blood sugar all throughout the day so that no one can cry foul. and do the defendants all have to wear this, you know, you know, equipment to edit out the race of a person? And will any of that still work, or is that still manipulable? Um, and so, the I guess the, the the point of the story is to try and plead for, you know, fixing ourselves rather than putting these band aids on because you just it's it's not how this is going to get fixed because it all can be manipulated. Well, right, and it can all be manipulated. Part, partly by Russian spies, which is another <laughs> like, large part of the story, which is also obviously inspired by current events. Have you have you followed the Russian spy stuff particularly closely? Do you have any? Um, did you do yeah. research on that, or do you have any strong opinions on that? Or I have strong opinions in that it's such a freak show, right? Um, and that more of it is out there than we even realize. I mean, when I when I initially wrote this story. I, you know, I was aware of kind of the basic headlines of it, but I got to say, this is one of those things that I've, I've learned a lot about in the last year and a half. And it's truly freaked me out just how manipulable uh, we are um, by them. Um, and listen, I mean, I come from the Caribbean, so I grew up hearing about, you know, us op, you know, operations, uh, information, you know, information operations against, South American countries and how, you know, uh, different, you know, uh, different elections have been swung by the U.S. and the CIA one way or another. And highly aware of that and have read a lot about that. And, you know, it's in some way, in some ways, this is sort of, you know, the past coming back up to catch up with the U.S., but it's still kind of wild to put a finger on your own realize how culpable you can be because some of the stuff that uh was released the the facebook did a dump showing all the different things that they the the groups and the 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 quizzes and all those other things that were created by russians and i recognized some of them some of them had been things that i'd either retweeted or clicked on or gone and read um because they were both uh hacking you know our worries on 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 my political side and the other side so it wasn't just that they were using angry conservatives they were using angry liberals as well by posting certain things designed to kind of get your anger up and get you to repost and retweet and basically bring the both sides to to a to a head and that was what was especially chilling to me just how hackable that was and 
I, I wanted to feature that in the story and show show how vulnerable uh, we are to that and our systems are to that. I mean, Malka, as the author of Infomocracy, do you have any <laughs> anything you want to add about us being manipulated on social media or whatever by um, sort of um, ill-intentioned agents? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's certainly terrifying and um and i really appreciate that that perspective of the more you look into it you know the more it freaks you out um but i also think that uh you know what what was just said is is exactly right which is that you know if we keep looking for technological fixes we're going to keep running into more technological problems and so it's really a question of and we know that by the way because every time we've had a technological innovation in information, this has happened, you know, it, it happened with books, it's happened with radio, we, you know, we forget that books and radio have been used for really horrible things. Um, and we forget, I think that, you know, I, I mean, I personally, when I look at social media, and I look at the situation we're in today, you know, as bad and as manipulable as it is, uh, I, I gotta say, I think I lay more of the blame on the cable news. Um, and so, you know, I think the, the television side of things then, um, we also have to look at. And so, you know, I think we really have to, to go back to fundamentals and, and think about, uh, education and think about, um, both rules and also kind of the, the structures and the incentives around information, uh, provision, infrastructure, uh, decisions. So, so yeah. What what sort of I education? Think, oh, sorry. I I I I wanted to jump on that and say, yeah, uh, that's one of the more powerful things is that, um, you know, the education side of it, the the fixing our society side of it, was just those fault lines are able to be exploited because those fault lines are there and huge. And so if 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 we are coming together as a society and and fixing some of these problems, if we're fixing you know the problem of police, you know, shooting black kids and then not getting held accountable for it. Um, if you take that off the table, you can't start riots from Russia by creating a protest Facebook page about it. You know, um, if, if we are educating people, uh, one of the things we know is that the older, uh, you know, a lot of this stuff is the really bad stuff is being spread by older folk um, via Facebook groups. So it's like, if we are able to educate people so that when that generation dies off, the next generation that comes in is more, media savvy, more aware of how this information is being, you know, used. Um, you, just like we're very, uh, a lot more mature about print propaganda. If we can become more mature as a society about digital propaganda, we start to, uh, sort of, uh, get better, but it's still because it's all new. It, it is, it is a bit freaky to see that we got caught off guard. And, and like I said, I, I kind of get that sense of personal, like, oh, I've had to grow up and I've had to look at my media consumption and figure out, you know, what not to pass on and what to pass on and, and what to retweet and stuff like that and be way more savvy about it. Otherwise I'm producing, you know, a, a drop in this, in this ocean. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think, you know, on the, the one hand there is, there's like the media literacy side of it. There's the like, you know, these are <laughs> the basic things you should know to check for and the sort of hints that um, you should be aware of as you're interacting with the, the digital world the virtual world. And then there's also the other part of the education, which is, you know, I mean, it, it, it would be great if we could solve the problem of, of police violence 
that, that's, you know, the, the ultimate goal. But in the meantime, also, if you grow up in a small town and all the people you talk to and all the people you hear speak, including on the television and on the radio, are telling you certain things about the police and that they have a dangerous job and they're working very hard and they're the ones protecting you against those other people who are dangerous, you know, you're going to have a certain view of things. And to break through that requires interaction with people who have different viewpoints. It requires a degree of education to be a little bit critical of the things that you're being told, to have the confidence in yourself to question uh, what people are telling you, to question blanket statements. And, you know, I think those, those two issues of, on the one hand, you know, poor education, education that has a lot to do with rote and education that has a lot to do with things that aren't directly related to people's lives. And on the other hand, segregation. I mean, there's a huge amount of segregation in this country and, and that's an education issue too. And that is a, a, a very political issue, um, in terms of how mm. people are able to, to think outside of, of what they've been told. And I think actually, you know, social media is a huge opportunity for us because we have so much choice of who we listen to. And there are people different from us right there. And all it takes is a click. Um, and sometimes it takes, you know, a couple of clicks if you need to get through a couple of people to find um, someone outside of your circle. But, you know, it's much more flexible than television was in the early days, uh, even books in the early days or radio. And we have an amazing opportunity there, but it's a matter of people taking taking that opportunity and, and really using it. Yeah. So I want to get John back into this conversation. Um, so, John, Sam was saying earlier that uh, that there were a number of anthologies, the sort of resistance type anthologies have been in the works. Have you followed those at all? Do you, Is there anything you could tell us about those? Uh, yeah. So Hugh Howie and Gary Wooda and uh, actually Christy Ant, uh co-edited a book called Resist, uh, Tales from a Future Worth Fighting Against. Um, they released that, um, I don't know, uh, several months ago, uh, toward the end of last year. Um, I think it came out in like November, October, November. Um, and uh, all of the proceeds of that one were are going to benefit the ACLU. Um, and there's a bunch of uh, really great stories in there. Um, it's it's largely reprints, so um, you know I hadn't uh, like read all of them because of Best American, um, but I, I did read all the originals. And there's uh, several really good, uh, you know, just really uh, um, sort of on point uh, to the topic uh, stories um, in that are original to that book, uh, including one by Charles Yu and one by uh, Jake Kerr. Um, and uh, so yeah, so that's a really good one. Um, I don't, I think, I think all of the other ones that I've seen are all coming out or all, you know, sort of 2019 titles and I haven't read them yet. Um, but I'm certainly keeping track of all of them and I'm going to look at them all if they have, uh, you know, original stories in them. Um, but I mean, that's the one so far that, uh, you know, that I know is already out and I know has good content in it. Um, and s- sorry, but, say again, John, what was the title of that one? It's called Resist Tales from a Future Worth Fighting Against. Um, I think Cat Rambo is doing one too, right? Yeah, Cat Rambo has one too. Uh, I believe it comes out this year though, so I haven't looked at it yet. Uh-huh. Yeah, hers is called If This Goes On. Right. Well, I mean, Hugh Howie has a story in, in your book, uh, yeah. that I really mm-hmm. enjoyed. Uh, it's called, yeah. uh, uh, wait. <laughs> no Algorithms in right, the right. World. Yeah. Uh, and it's about the universal basic income. Uh, the mm-hmm. premise of the story basically is that there's a character, and he's uh, interacting with his father, who's very conservative, and 
this isn't a world where the universal basic income has been implemented. And so most people, you know, don't work ordinary jobs. They pursue, you know, they spend time with their families or pursue passion projects and things like that. And his father is very, um, you know, critical of this. And, and he thinks, you know, he, people should be working ordinary jobs. But of course, there aren't that many jobs to be done in this world. Um, and so his father's business involves uh, restaurants where, uh, you know, humans prepare the food, uh, which is not actually necessary because robots can do it just just fine. But uh, there's there's sort of a clientele that still wants to be served food by humans. And so that's who he uh, uh, caters to, <laughs> so to speak. Um <laughs> But so, uh, but so, yeah. So I, I, I thought the story was just really well done. Um, did you have any? I don't know, do you have any thoughts, John, on on that story or the universal basic income, or did you talk to Hugh about it at all, or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, I, I actually specifically we spe we specifically invited Hugh because we wanted him to write something about universal universal basic income because uh, I had seen him talk about it a lot before on uh, social media, and uh, I know he'd written at least one other story um, that dealt with it. Um, uh, the X Prize did a sort of online anthology uh, a year or two ago, um, and and uh, it was called. It, it was it had like the it was like flight, and then it had some flight number. And that that was the name of it. I can't remember off the top of my head, but but Hugh had a story in there that also dealt uh, dealt with universal basic income that I uh, I thought was really interesting. Um, so I thought it would be uh, cool to get him to add, uh, you know to get him to write a story in this book uh, that sort of uh, put it put it in the context of this. Um, you know, uh, of the framework of the anthology and, and ask him to, you know, uh, explore that issue further. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't know much more about, uh, Hugh's views on it other than what I've, uh, you know, read there, but, um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's why we invited him. Yeah. And the universal basic income in case anyone doesn't know is just every citizen would get a certain payment per month or whatever, that would be kind of a floor, um, you know, that you could then build on if you wanted to, but everyone would be provided for. And there would be right. no like perverse incentives where you're punished for working because you, you get the payment regardless. Right. Um, yeah, that's one of the, that's one of the things like, um, you know, you were talking about earlier how um, how certain stories have like things like climate change just in the background and it's not really the focus of the story. And maybe that um, sort of starts to make uh, progress with uh, sort of changing people's minds about the reality of the situation. I feel like in stories in, in, in things like in The Expanse where universal basic income is just like an assumption that existed for lots of people. Um, I, I, I feel like that's the kind of thing where it's like, oh, hey. Yeah, like, that's interesting. What is that? Like, maybe it makes you think about it in a different way, because it's like, you know, in the expanse, everything seems so far, you know, in the future that it's like, that's just taken as a given that that that, that came around at some point for everyone. Mm -hmm. I want to I, I want to just jump in and, and um, underline Toby's point earlier about like, you know, even the biggest, most sweeping social policy change is going to be a band-aid if you're not addressing the sort of like underlying problems that you have in your society. Because if you look at things like public housing in America, which, you know, was like a very widespread nationwide effort to deal with, um, you know, a really big problem that tons and tons of low-income folks face in terms of having safe, uh, affordable housing that, that they can live in and, and sustain themselves in, um, and coming up with a very big, ambitious, uh, you know, game changing solution, um, but without changing the fundamental facts of racism and, and urban exploitation, you're going to have it go to shit really quickly because governments are going to disinvest in it. And, you know, there won't be trash maintenance and there won't be like regular repainting. And so, you know, 
uh, I'm all for thinking about the sort of big picture policy changes that, that we want to see that could help address some of the problems. But, you know, we're still going to be really, we're still going to be building on a really unsound foundation. Um, you know, really no matter where you're, where you're looking at, there's going to be these kinds of systemic problems, um, that are going to be really challenging to think about how to fix. I mean, do you have an opinion, Sam, on universal basic income? Cause it seems to me that it, if it's universal, it can't be selectively disinvested in. By definition, yeah, I mean it's not something that I've that I've uh, studied um, or thought about enough to know like what exactly that would look like. Um, but uh, it's very easy for me if you look at things like welfare um, or things that were supposed to be deployed without you know without looking at. Um, race or that were supposed to be available to everyone um, and the ways that they got stigmatized, um, the ways that they were associated with, um, you know, oh, this is for those types of people and not for those other types of people, the ways that the narratives about it got shifted and perverted and changed over time until even something that was seemingly broader and more, um, you know, uh, less focused could, could be, could be, dis could be disinvested in and, um, stigmatized to the point where everyone's falling over themselves to, to badmouth it or hate it or change it. Hmm. Did Malka or Toby, do you, either of you have an opinion on universal basic income? Uh, I think it's, it's great as long as it's not used as a replacement for other parts of the social safety net. Um, particularly if it's a sort of really basic income, right? So if, you know, I think the, the danger that some people see is that, you know, someone says, okay, we're going to give everyone a thousand bucks a month. And that means that there's no more, uh, welfare. There's no more Medicare. There's no more, you know, assistance for people who, who don't have enough then to, to use the public transportation they need to get to their work, et cetera. Um, so, you know, I think we need to be a little bit cautious about the way that it can be used as kind of a, a, a sop or the way that the term can be maybe undermined from what its its initial intent was. I think, uh, yeah, the core concept fascinates me quite a bit, but I have uh, Monka's reservation as well in that a lot of the uh, proposals I've seen for UBI come about getting the core cash for it by shutting down uh, systems that we already have. So it's like, hey, if we get rid of Social Security and Medicaid and Medicare and give everyone like a flat $2,000 a month, then everything just magically solves itself. And I wonder like, you know, does that take, you know, that does that really help? You know, uh, uh, there's some amount of government that's out there to help people who can't help themselves. So does that help? You know, kids who are struggling, you know, um, does that help people who have mental health problems who need to get off the street? It seems to uh, be one of those kind of, you know, problems where some of the proponents kind of say, like, in a perfect world, this solves everything. You know, if everyone acts completely 100 percent rationally, this works. But, you know, what happens? Does does the cost of health insurance get, get jacked up? You know, is there... Um, massive amounts of inflation that happen as a result of using a UBI. I don't know. So I'm always very interested in um, following the actual experiments because there's a lot of stuff that I love academically and that sound great academically. But then when we try them, we're kind of like, oh, no, that didn't work. So, yeah, I, I'm all over the place on it. I, I love the core idea of it, but it it scares the crap out of me, too, because I think it allows a vehicle for some people to escape responsibility for the the sort of we're all in this together part. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, you were saying, Toby, that, you know, you wanted to explore some sort of techno utopian ideas in your story, and then you're um, highlighting some of the drawbacks. Are there any big picture policy or I don't want to put you on the spot, but like techno utopian <laughs> sort of things that you that you would sort of like enthusiastically endorse that, that have come up to your attention? Um, sure. Put me on the spot. Uh, UBI is, is the closest. I think that particularly here in the States, there's a reluctance to give people resources. And I was just telling someone today about, um, uh, you know, here we are, Twitter exposing us to stuff that we may not have seen before. Um, I saw a clip of a person who just had uh, twins uh, in the uh, Japanese healthcare system and his uh, health insurance company overpaid the hospitals. So they gave him $1,500 back and he was having trouble understanding what they meant because huh. he thought that they were asking for $1,500 from him. Um, so his mind was completely blown. And then they were like, no, it's $1,500 times two because you had twins. And then his mind was further blown. And then they were then they were saying that there was a cash benefit that comes from having kids to help you get started that arrives as well. And the clip ends there. And I, you know, I showed it, you know, I showed it to a, a friend and then I also told my wife about it. And I said, you know, I have twins. I'm like, can you imagine getting $3,000 plus some extra other cash instead of being $10,000, $10,000 in debt like we were for having dared to have twins, you know, like, and it just, it, it, it blew my mind as well. But, um, you know, in, in places like, uh, Nordic countries where you're given, uh, you know, cash benefits for having children, um, a small cash allowance to help with the extra expense that children generate, um, just things like that are policy decisions that I think are really interesting. We claim to be a, a pro family kind of country, but we are actually an incredibly anti family country. You know, having kids was just one of the most, uh, economically, uh, uh, devastating decisions I've ever made in my life besides getting sick because I was stupid enough to do that once I have a heart defect but like you know I I'm delighted to have kids I love my kids um, I'm super incredibly proud of them and I'm gonna stick with them and do everything I can for them but like wow there are other countries where like you know I would get like a $300 a month cash payment to help like cover some of their needs and the extra food that they eat you know and it's like wow that's amazing. What a what a great concept was, to make it easier to have kids. There was the thing, Toby, I don't know if you know this, those stickers people have on the backs of their cars where there's like the little stick figures for each member of the family. Yeah. I saw this one one time where it's like the husband and wife and then there's just a giant pile of money and then there's no kids. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's true. Like, I mean, I, I occasionally, you know, hang out with friends who are double income, no kid, you know, and the the sort of flexibility they have in terms of just raw money sometimes just blows my mind. It's It's a thing to behold. Yeah. Does anyone want to take that? Does anyone have any uh, ideas for saving the world with technology or policy <laughs> or anything that, you know, uh, not enough people know about? I mean, I have so many. <laughs> yeah. Same. They're, yeah. They're mostly yeah. either in my book or in the next book. So <laughs> so read Informa Cross. I'm sorry. <laughs> I can't do that. <laughs> How do you pronounce it? Because my brain is blanking. Infomocracy. Infomocracy. And it gets misspelled so often that I have to do both searches on Twitter if I want to know what people are saying. <laughs> nice. But if anyone's listening, it is a fantastic novel and full of ideas, like she said. Oh, thank you. Uh, Sam, did you... 
Yeah, my big technological, like, it isn't a fix. It's just a thing that I hate that I want not to be the thing um, hmm. that I've been obsessing over and I'm trying to figure out how to uh, write a sh short story about it. It's just thinking about this whole rhetoric of disruption and the ways in which um, most software, most of the software that's being developed, like Uber or Seamless or Postmates or Lyft, um, are what they're disrupting is workers' money, right? They're taking money um, that used to be in workers' pockets and other other things that 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 um, are less valid to me. But also just like you know, looking at the ways that like Seamless, I get delivery through Seamless on my phone, um, and the, they take twenty two percent of the restaurant's cut, which they don't tell you that. Um, so just looking at the ways that all this software, if it was collectively owned and operated by, uh, the, you know, the, the workers and the people making the money, that would actually result in, you know, lower prices and money going into the pockets of human beings instead of venture capitalists. Not that venture capitalists aren't human beings. They're just <laughs> not not human beings. Well, yeah, I, I just watched uh, The Inventor last night. It's about Elizabeth Oh, my Holmes God, it's so good. Theranos. <laughs> Yeah, it's really good. Yeah. yeah, but just just the 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 line that really sticks with me is when um somebody says, you know, the uh philosophy in Silicon Valley is move fast and break things, and that doesn't really work when you're talking about healthcare, you know. Right. <laughs> yeah, or the fucking taxi drivers who are committing suicide because they can't make a living anymore. Hmm. Well, I, one of the things I'm endlessly fascinated about, and one of the reasons I I love Malka's novel, if I can fanboy a little bit here is I'm really interested in participative democracy. Um, I was reading a lot about the stuff that was happening down in Brazil and, you know, the, the sort of ways in which uh, the, the reconceptualizing is sort of politicians down in Brazil as people who are project managers, but the money decisions are made kind of by the populace, the voting populace, which is very different than from like representative democracy, which I think is kind of a, like sort of the critique that's at the heart of, of her novel. But um, the idea of sort of like, Participatory democracy has been kind of uh, fascinating me ever since um, John Joseph Adams commissioned me to write a story years and years ago for an anthology he did called Seeds of Change, which is actually sort of a, a almost like a prequel to this current anthology uh, that we're talking about. And I wrote a story in that called Resistance, which is about a sort of uh, um, uh, people who give up the right to vote because they let the algorithms decide how they would have voted based on buying patterns and whatnot and uh, kind of give that over. Um, and um, out of kind of being lured into a participatory democracy. So, I mean, that, 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 that's, even though that's a critique of it, I'm really actually fascinated by participatory democracies and some of the smaller uh, democratic structures that she was writing about in her book. That that story also has a badass space mercenary in it that fights an AI. By the way, so you know I, it's it's. I much can't more help myself. He just made it sound. <laughs> yeah, I I do book talks all the time where I'm like, here's my really super wonky system of governance and information management in the future, and also there are chase scenes and katanas. <laughs> Actually, speaking of that, John, I want to highlight this. Uh, there's a story in the book called O Point One. Um, mm -hmm. I think you mentioned Gabby Rivera, right? And so yeah. um, one of the ideas in it is that there's a sentient virus that kills you if you have white supremacist attitudes. Um, and so there's actually a thing about a character who there's a treatment for it, but the, the treatment is to you have to build up your empathy and compassion. And this character just refute, you know, it's like, I'd rather die than change my um, political views, basically. And I thought I thought that was an interesting idea, like, you know, 
who's who's able to who's able and or willing to change their political views in the face of a virus that's going to kill you if you don't. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's it's like a really interesting thought experiment, but it kind of seems like the sort of thing that like uh, if it were ever implemented, it probably actually would destroy the world somehow. Um, but right. I'm not I'm not endorsing this. I, I just thought it was. An yeah, interesting... yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're not you're not planning to release it right now. No, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I have a general antivirus, killer virus uh, policy, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I, I guess that kind of reminds me of the Hugh Howey story too. But just this, this idea of people who refuse to change their minds, no matter what, you know. I guess this, this right. is a big, big issue on the internet and everything. Yeah, I mean it kind of it kind of feels like that's what the the whole world is like at least uh, among adults. I'm hoping that the younger people aren't going to be as entrenched as all that, but uh you know anytime you watch the news it's like um I mean, I can't even watch, you know, I can't even watch like 2 minutes of of like Fox News for instance cuz it's like so alien to me what they're saying. It's just like complete gibberish and then um like I feel like anybody who is a Fox News viewer would have the same thing, have the same opinion if they like watch MSNBC, and so it's like we're just so entrenched in in, in our beliefs that it feels really hard to uh, see how we're going to get out of this uh, situation uh, that we find ourselves in, where we do have this uh, rift between uh, you know sides of the country. Um, you know, so I where I live, uh, I don't, I don't, I don't uh, you know, I live in California, so it, and where I live is, uh, you know, pretty blue. But um, I was just uh, in Orlando, um, you know, speaking at UCF, which is my alma mater, and uh, it's uh, quite red there. And uh, so I was speaking, and we were talking about, uh, you know, best American, and we we're talking about uh, diversity, and how do we, you know, how do we ensure that there's diversity in the book when the guest editor, you know, reads things anonymously, and. Um, you know, so some, one of the people that was there, he wrote an angry letter to the professors that had me, uh, that invited me there, uh, you know, saying that it's like, oh, well, uh, you know, white men can't get published, obviously, and that's what the whole point, that's, that's what I was saying, is that, you know, we won't publish white men. I was like, I was literally sitting next to a white man that I had published, uh, who was one of the professors. You know, it's like, Micah Dean Hicks is one of the professors, and he, I published his novel via my, uh, my novel imprint. It's like, literally, we were doing a co, uh, you know, uh, uh, an event that both of us were participating in. So there was one right there. But anyway, this, you know, it's like, yeah, it's like people just have, like, you know, I feel like so many people just have this, you know, they, they, they've learned what they've learned and it's like, they're never going to change. And it's like, even, you know, and they, even to the extent that they just hear what they want to hear. Cause it's like, I certainly didn't say I will never publish white men or that, you know, whatever. Did, it's did, like, it, it's just. Did you have an essay, like a, a editorial that got rejected for being too political or something? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, one of the things I hate to do is write introductions to my anthologies. Um, and so in a case like this, where I have a co-editor, I got out of it because Victor wrote it. But then um, uh, the publicist uh, for the book uh, was, you know, going around trying to get publicity for it. And, and there was a an online venue that had commissioned um, an essay. Uh, and basically what they wanted was an introduction to the book. And so it's like, all right, so I'll, I'll write it. And so I had to do it over the weekend. And, um, so I did it and well, but first I clarified, I'm like, Hey, it's okay to get like super political about this. Right. Because it's like, it's kind of hard to talk about this, the, uh, the background of this book without being super political. And they said, Oh yeah, yeah, sure. Um, but then, so I wrote it and, uh, and it was super political, but then they rejected it for being too political. Um, so I thought that was pretty ridiculous. Um, I ended up tweeting it out and uh, I, sh oh, and I posted it on Facebook as well. So it's like, it's sort of easier to read all in one thing. I should probably put it on my website, but, um, 
yeah, I just sort of lay out all the like I start. I it starts with a with sort of me writing a rejection letter to Donald Trump uh, by di- uh, rejecting his vision, his dystopian vision of America. Um, basically, like pretending like it was a, a story that someone had written and submitted to me, um, and then I just go on from there. But um, yeah, anyway, that happened. Yeah, well, actually, so going back to people who just disagree with you so strongly. I mean, the things that I've heard is that if you want to convince somebody. I think, like, first of all, you can't expect them to change their mind on the spot. That's never going to happen. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to give them time. But then also, you they have to like you and respect you as a person. Like, if someone doesn't like mm-hmm. you and respect you as a person, they're never going to be swayed by you. So that's sort of the first step is you have to earn their, uh, you know, affection and uh, respect, whatever. Um, and I think also you can't make the person you're interacting with feel stupid. I think that that completely mm-hmm. just shuts down any chance that you're going to persuade them. Right. Um, I don't know. Has anyone on the panel had any notable success uh, persuading anyone of anything, uh, either with fiction or with the uh, conversation? I I don't I don't know. Maybe, but I I do know that I used to have a lot of conversations with people I disagreed with politically and ideologically, and if we didn't persuade each other of the points, we at least saw each other as human at the end of it. You know, we, we interacted as people with these questions of policy. And um, often, you know, I learned a lot more about both my opinion and their opinion through the discussion. And, you know, not being able to do that was anymore because it's gotten, I think that's gotten harder and harder to do, uh, both because of the sort of dehumanizing impact of more and more segregated news sources and also just the difficulty of finding like baseline facts to agree on. You know, as you were saying about about watching Fox or or watching MSNBC, like it's actually very hard to even have the discussion across that. Mm -hmm. And so I do think that there's a huge value to to just the level of interaction that even if you're not necessarily convincing someone, you're showing them that the other viewpoint is acceptable and doesn't totally threaten their existence and worldview by by being there. I mean, Sam or Toby, any uh, any notable success? I mean, a big part of my work as a community organizer is convincing people to do things they don't want to do. Um, <laughs> and those are usually people that I, I, I agree with on a number, you know, that we agree that the thing that we're fighting for is important. But, um, you know, there are things that need to be done in the pursuit of making a given change that sometimes people are scared to do, like be the press spokesperson at a rally or um, participate in a protest that you're afraid might get you kicked out of your shelter um, or, you know, be the chant leader at a pro, you know, any number of things that often involve getting people to step outside of their comfort zone. Um, and, you know, usually the, the, the best way to do that is to really focus on, you know, the common ground and the things that we, that we want to achieve together and, and the, the sort of like, um, things that they're afraid of and, and what, whether, whether those, you know, how those fears might not be, um, so scary. Um, or, or realistic. Um, so, you know, that tends to be where I focus my, my energy in terms of convincing people. I haven't had a ton of success convincing jerks who think, uh, who have really backwards thinking on an issue that's important to me to change their mind. Um, and, and, and sometimes I've had productive conversations that go into the, the, the really great points Malco was just talking about. Um, but often I, I, uh, get upset <laughs> or walk away or or otherwise fail to honor the kind of like good good conscious good faith dialogue that is that is needed mm-hmm. uh, Toby, I, I find I, I find it always you know of course very challenging but I am 
I have uh, a little bit of oppositional defiant di- disorder, uh, thanks to my ADD. So I, I, I have engaged many people over the years <laughs> and, um, I, I don't know who I've, you know, successfully, you know, changed opinions of, but I've, I've gotten some good feedback in terms of the, the, the direction I've, I've gone of late is or not of late, but over the last 10 years is to do these really heavily researched. Basically, um, a friend of mine once laughed because someone said something somewhat silly in a Facebook post and I showed up and I came with graphs and they, huh. they laughed because they were like, Oh, look, I, for some reason I knew that if Toby was going to respond to this thing, that there would be graphs involved. Um, I, I tend to come with just a lot of research and for years I was really dispirited because I'd read something about the blowback effect and how when people kind of get, you know, sh- when someone shows up with a lot of facts and, and research that they get, uh, they double down on their position. And I, I was really bummed by that, but I was like, I have to believe that that facts matter, even though we were just, you know, Malka just said that we're in a place now where we can't even agree on facts, but I, I think I still believe those matter. And many years after I heard about the blowback effect, I, I heard another podcast that said that like, that's it, the blowback effect is real. People do double down on their, their beliefs, but that over time, constantly having your facts knocked out from under you creates cognitive dissonance and plants the seed of doubt, um, which means that if a person then is willing to go hunting, if if you weren't being a jackass to them, if a person's willing to go hunting uh, for the information, then then they stand a chance at being able to learn something new and maybe come around to a different point of view. And I'll say this, um, I, I believe this because um, I've, I've seen it in effect on myself. You know. Um, I, I recently unscientifically purchased a, uh, at, at the recommendation of someone who works in psychiatry, um, I suffer, suffer from seasonal affective disorder and someone rec- recommended these earbuds that shine light into your eardrums. Now, I don't know the science behind all of this stuff, but I was just like, well, it seems reasonable that whole light being shined into my eardrums might work in the same way that light being hit on your skin would um because we use a light box sometimes they're just really inconvenient so if i could have like an ipod light box that i just carry around with me i'd love to do that um i mentioned it on twitter and probably 15 people Hmm. all basically dropped on my head and were like this is nonsense this is total nonsense and like i didn't respond to any of them i was just kind of like oh you know um I'll, i'll look into it further but you know the moment someone drops on your head and says you're a moron this isn't real. The science is bad. And you haven't put a lot of thought into it one way or another. Your hackles do rise because you don't think of yourself as a moron. Um, and, and so I, you know, I had to take some time and go, go look at the, the counter suggestions that they had for me. And over the space of a week or two, I came around to realizing that I think that they're, they're right. They, they, they knocked down my facts and, and this thing is, this thing is pseudoscience. So I, I tossed it out and now I have to use the damn light box, which I hate. <laughs> Um, and so everyone to, just you know, needs, needs to be more like Toby. That's the big takeaway from this. No, God, no. We <laughs> don't want a world full of people like me. But I'm just saying, like, I, I think that in the moment, if someone had walked up to my face in person, you know, and saw me using that and just sort of gotten in my face about it and been like, I'm so disappointed in you playing with pseudoscience. I mean, I in that moment, in that argument, it would have been tempting to double down. And I can see myself, I can, I see where that comes from. Um, and so I've tried to, to, to think about, you know, 
the fact that even if I don't see someone change their mind in front of me and in the middle of a huge intense argument, if I can just work on them and knock down some of the little, uh, you know, the little bad facts and increase, create some cognitive dissonance that down the road, if they are of the mind to investigate more, they, they might head out and, and, and look. And, and that's, that's about all I have the power to do probably. Yeah. All right. So we're pretty much out of time. So let's start wrapping this up pretty soon. But so, John, I did want to ask you. So I listened to one of the uh, um, live events uh, and Victor Laval was saying that, um, you know, he sort of hopes that there will be sequels to this anthology released periodically. It could be almost like the State of the Union address. I don't know if you listened to this or not, but mm-hmm. he seemed pretty happy with the project and, uh, you know, interested in doing more of these things. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm definitely interested in as well. I mean, I would like to, I would like to hope that they wouldn't be necessary, but I mean, the thing is, even if, um, Trump got impeached and, uh, things course corrected completely on the political side, there's still a long way to go, man. I mean, there's still that, you know, 34% or whatever it is of, uh, of that Trump base that really believes in what he's doing even now, you know, so as long as there's that many people out there that still have this way of thinking, I mean, we're going to, we're going to continue to have problems for a long time. Plus, I mean, they're still, you know, the Senate's still controlled by Republicans at the moment. And a lot of them are just going right along with Trump, even in the face of everything that he's done. Um, so, I mean, it's like, uh, yeah, <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, I'd be glad to keep doing them as well. Um, and the, the book's done really well so far. It's actually in its third printing already. So, Oh, wow. Congratulations. Um, so, yeah. Thanks. Uh, I mean, it's, Thank you guys. Um, but, uh, I'll, I'll just, I'll just add though for everyone who made it all the way to the end of the episode here. Um, you know, if you read this book and you liked it, like by all means, like, I mean, I say this all the time with every book, but I mean, like, please go leave a review on Amazon or something because the people who hated it, the people who are like, Oh, this is all liberal propaganda, blah, blah, blah. Like they have no compunctions about leaving that one star review over there and they have. Um, so yeah. So we could use a little more, uh, a few more right-thinking reviews uh, by not, or I should maybe I say left-thinking, but you know, like correct, correct-thinking <laughs> reviews um, that that aren't just railing against the idea, even a liberal thought. <laughs> All right, so yes, yeah, so when we start wrapping this up, so does anyone have any final thoughts? So uh, how about Malka? Any uh, any final thoughts you want to throw in here at the end? No, I'm fine, thanks. <laughs> Sam, final thoughts. Uh, the future is ours, question mark. Okay. Uh, Toby, any final thoughts? Uh, this was just a tremendous amount of fun to have a place to kind of publicly process some of this stuff and, uh, just try to tackle some of these ideas. So I'm always honored that I get a chance to do this. Yeah. All right, great. So uh, everyone go check out this anthology. It's called A People's Future of the United States. And so we've been speaking with John Joseph Adams, Tobias S. Bikel, Sam J. Miller, and Malka Older. So thanks, everyone, so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having me. And that was our panel. So big thanks again to John Joseph Adams, Tobias S. Bikel, Sam J. Miller, and Malka Older for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. 
The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.